I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, I've, uh, I've been trying intermittent fasting the last couple days. I don't know if some of you are familiar with it or not. Uh, the, the idea is that you uh, spend more hours not eating than you spend eating, uh, which just sounds like, uh, like good math right there if you're trying to keep track of calories. And so what I've been doing is uh, I, I try not to eat after 7 or 8 in the evening and don't eat again the next day until about noon or 1 o'clock. And so I have this nice window, about 16, 17 hours of fasting. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard good things about it. I've, I've seen good things. You know, I've seen people lose weight that way and read up on it and helps uh, with insulin sensitivity and reestablishing that in the body. So all in all, uh, looks like good stuff. Uh, the experience of it, though, uh, for someone doing it means that Sitting here uh, in meditation this morning, uh, aside from trying to quiet and still my mind for the talk, was meditating on the sensation of hunger and, uh, and the dissatisfaction of an empty stomach and uh, the pains and, and feelings that go with that. And I, I share that with you because it's a, it's a small example of what, we, what some might call uh, a negative thought or a negative experience or a negative emotion in meditation. And that's really what I want to talk about today, these, these negative experiences and what I refer to as letting go. And I've, I've used that term a few times so far in, in teaching and I've had some fun results. I, I say that and I see eyes bug out a little bit. I see people squirm around uncomfortably with the concept of letting go. And I've had at least one person tell me point blank to my face that letting go is impossible. Uh, and for, for me, it, it isn't something that's impossible. It's something that not only I've seen in my own practice, but something that I've seen other people teach effectively and and implement in their lives effectively. So I thought maybe there was something wrong about the phrase. Maybe it meant something to me that it didn't mean to, to others. And I think maybe in the English language, in American English, you know, uh, letting go sounds too much like just let it go, or maybe it sounds a little vapid, meaningless. I don't know. Partially, I think I blame the Disney movie Frozen. Uh, <laughs> Because I think some people come up with legitimate concerns and it's as if I just swung my arms and said, let it go, like the Disney song, you know. Uh, and, uh, and that's not, not really it. It could be more bleak than that, though. I, I remember hearing a story that someone took the, the song lyrics of let it go, put it through Google Translate to Chinese and then back to English and it came back as give up. So at least I'm not telling people to give up. That'd be pretty bad. But I, I do tell people to let go. But for me, I, I think it must mean something different because people look at me very confused and uncomfortable. And I think that over time, for me, let go has become a, a type of, of mantra I tell myself when various things arise because let go has become uh, 
you know, a, a shorthand way of thinking about the attitude that we have in meditation and all the things associated with that. This attitude that we have in meditation that when we build it up and it becomes very strong, it becomes the attitude with which we carry ourselves throughout all aspects of our lives. So, for me, letting go is essentially shorthand for the attitude that we adopt that really comes down to how we approach meditation. And so one example is letting go in that we approach meditation without any expectations. That is a very big one when we first start out meditating because we often have expectations of how meditation should be. When we first start out, we're told that meditation is this calm and tranquil activity that, that boosts our wisdom and clarity. And when you practice something like Vipassana that, that I practice, what happens first and foremost is you really just turn up the volume on all your thoughts and you get to see the contents there. And most of the thoughts are fairly trivial things. You know, you, you were at the mall and you saw someone attractive and now you have these lustful thoughts arise. Uh, you have hunger hit and you start craving your favorite Chicago deep dish pizza. Mostly trivial things like that. But other things come up. Very strong feelings come up. Uh, for me, uh, one of my strong feelings would be uh, anger. Um, I was always someone who struggled with anger. I, I think in, in some ways I, I have a healthier relationship to anger now, but I still see that propensity for anger in myself. But now I can just see the thoughts and, and not always have to act on them. But it took a long time. The first part, the first step in meditation was becoming aware of all of that hot bed of anger. And when the expectation you had of meditation was how peaceful and wonderful it was going to be, being faced with all of that negativity can be very disheartening. And so we have to let go of expectations, assuming that because these negative things are coming up, we've somehow done something wrong in our meditation. It doesn't mean that. It's perfectly natural that the negative thoughts, negative emotions arise. And what we're battling against is an expectation that they shouldn't be there at all. And so that's something that I've, that I've seen in my own experience meditating, expectations of how it should be. And over time, you, you do lessen the expectations and meditation starts becoming a little smoother. And then one day, for some reason, it just isn't. You, you could have a month, two months in a row of, of, of perfect, blissful states and it's all quiet. And then for some reason, there's no outward stimulus. It just, there it is again. Anger, jealousy, hatred, lust, whatever. Anything that you might or I might perceive as negative just arises. And there might be that expectation because things have gone so smoothly that well, they will always go smoothly. And then we react very strongly to that. We, we have this resistance. So... Letting go also means that we approach meditation without straining. I think early on, uh, I thought meditation required 
lots and lots and lots of effort, especially because I expected no negative thoughts. So when they did arise, my immediate impulse would be to try to, to pound them back down, down under, underneath the surface, suppress them with great effort and great strife and struggle. And with Vipassana, and I think also in, in many other uh, meditative styles within Buddhism, that's never the, the goal, suppression. Suppression doesn't do anything useful. You know, it, it pushes the problem away for a time, but it often comes back stronger and in more powerful ways, in more disruptive ways in our lives. And struggling against these negative emotions is probably one of the worst things we could do. So we can't struggle with all this great effort to try to find stillness in, in meditation because that's, that's not how stillness, that's not how tranquility is won. We might say that letting go in this way is uh, acceptance. Acceptance of, of what arises. Acceptance of what comes up. Whatever that may be. We also need to make sure that we don't try to rush the process in meditation. So we have to let go of a particular timeline. We hear that uh, the Buddha you know, achieved liberation within six years of, of meditative practice. Uh, many of us here today, pretty sure we've been meditating longer than six years. And if we held ourselves to that kind of timeline, then we'd be so frustrated at this point. Like, why not yet? Why not now? And of course, there are a lot of reasons, uh, conditions in our lives. Uh, if, if we uh, prescribe to uh, reincarnation, there's probably even, or rebirth rather, uh, there's probably even more to be said about that. You know, this particular lifetime, maybe not, the conditions are quite right, who knows. But if we compare ourselves to others, we only run into, into further problems. If we hold ourselves to a particular timeline that we've created. Uh, I started meditating very, very young. Uh, many people who've, who've heard me speak before know that I started meditating about 12 years old. And at the time, luckily, I, I didn't have a goal. I was just meditating because meditation seemed really cool. And it was a, a fun thing to do that would usually happen right before my martial arts training. We'd meditate for a few minutes, and then it became something that I started to do at home as well because I just I liked the the states of mind that would that would arise. But I wasn't actively seeking them out. What happened though is I got into my twenties and I became more serious about meditation, and I started learning about vipassana and the qualities of investigation of the mental processes that, that is there and really wanted to investigate. Like I heard that word investigation and understanding and knowledge and, and went full force into it. And uh, I've told people many times, I, I would meditate so powerfully, so focused, I'd be so concentrated, I thought, that I would have sweat dripping down my face. I would get up from the cushion with the worst tension headache imaginable which is the opposite of tranquility and, and peacefulness and, and any of these expectations we have about meditation, that it will be this wonderful experience because then you're just sitting in misery for like half an hour 
And then if you are really gung-ho like me, you're sitting in misery for like an hour and, and then the stiffness in your body and the pain and, and it's all, you know, it's all self. We we're all creating it. At least I was in, in that way. I was creating even more strife, even more struggle because I thought I needed to have certain types of realization by a certain time in a certain way. And the more I sat down on the cushion, the faster it was going to be. And so even though I was just starting out on a new technique in Vipassana, I needed to meditate as long as I possibly could. And, uh, and I just racked my body with stress because I wasn't seeing what I wanted to see. I wasn't having the experiences I wanted to have. And, uh, and it was just, you know, a big waste of time because I could have been much gentler in my approach. No expectations, no struggle, no, you know, desire to rush through the process, to let it happen organically. And when we, we begin to take on that attitude, meditation does become more tranquil because so much of that resistance, so much of that effort starts to, to erode and, and melt away. We hear something like skillful effort and we always assume that it means a bunch of really hard work. But skillful effort, you know, I, for a long time I used to call it effortless effort and I think maybe that might be inappropriate because then it just sounds like you don't do anything and it's, no, it, you're still doing something. There's still the process there. In Vipassana you have definite goals of realization, of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of, of non-self. But the investigation itself is gentle and it's intimate because it's your own mind, it's your own body, it's your own perceptions, experiences. And it really doesn't take a whole lot of effort to be with yourself. It takes time, it takes discipline, but the effort itself is so gentle and much gentler than we expect it to be. So we, we mount this big assault on our mind, turn it into an enemy, when intimacy and knowledge and understanding comes from friendship with the mind and what arises. That is why the imagery of letting go is so useful. Because letting go is accepting everything that arises in such a way that there is no clinging or no aversion, no fighting with our experiences. Because that's precisely what the Buddha talks about with our, our stress and our struggle, our, our dissatisfaction with life. Because we live in such a state of resistance. You know, clinging, aversion, and delusion is so much about resisting life as it is, the experiences we have as they are. And meditation then becomes the, the training ground for acceptance, for being with things the way they are right now, and being okay with that. Seeing how the mind will always find ways to label our experiences, decide what's positive, decide what's negative, decide what's, what's neutral. And letting go is powerful because Clinging and aversion are precisely about grabbing onto something. You know, whether you're drawing something to you or pushing it away, you have to grab onto it first. And that's how letting go makes room for gentle and intimate awareness. Because 
we are consciously seeing our attraction and our aversion and taking a step back, taking a step away just enough to see the process as it is. And doing this in the midst of our lives requires great effort, great mindfulness, and great tranquility or concentration of mind. Those are precisely the things we develop with skillful meditation. That's why we, we meditate. That's why we talk about it as a practice, because in meditation we are absolutely learning how to live. It's a very life-affirming process and practice to meditate. It seems like inactivity from the outside, but if anyone could peer in our minds as we meditate, they would see how active and healing a process it is. This gentle effort, this gentle striving towards knowledge and understanding, because it gives us the tools necessary to lead skillful lives, because our ability to relate skillfully to our thoughts and our emotions and our perceptions allows us the ability to, to carry that skillfulness into our, our actions, our words with others, our livelihood, all the relationships we have in the world. Because if you can have compassion and understanding for your own faults, it becomes that much easier to have the same compassion and understanding for the faults of others. If you can respond kindly and gently to your own anger, your own doubts, your own fears, jealousies, you have the same capacity for others. That's, that's how something so subjective as meditation leads to objective truths and also helps us be more objective with others and what we might perceive as failings. I know that I'm not the only one to have thought that Buddhist meditation uh, fixes the mind. Uh, that can be um, something that we can get hung up on for a, for a long time because we see the mind as, as something uh, wrong, broken, faulty, all these various uh, things that we think about that lead to actions, lead to words that we often regret. And... The tricky part is realizing that, that meditation and, and the activities we do as, as Buddhists aren't actually about fixing ourselves, fixing our minds, fixing our, our bodies, but accepting them. And, and that can be very, very liberating, even just on, that on, on the onset of that realization, that we're not actually trying to fix anything about ourselves, but that liberation comes through acceptance of ourselves. This is, of course, tempered with, with the, the knowledge of how what we do, what we think, what we say affects the world and affects others. Acceptance of self in a wholesome, skillful way doesn't lead to just blindly doing what we want, saying what we want, acting how we want, all of that. Uh, because a, as we grow in compassion and understanding of ourselves, we, we see the, the connections, we see interdependence, we see the ways that we're connected to everyone else. And as we grow in this gentleness, we can't help but be gentle with, with those we come into contact with. 
everyone in, in any context. It takes a while, but then you, you see how, how it happens. Um, quite recently, my, my wife and I were in a small uh, fender bender. We were leaving our, our complex and driving out through one of the small alleyways and uh, you know, following the speed limit is like five miles per hour. We were going really slow. And someone started backing out of their garage right as we were, as, as we were passing and uh, they weren't looking and they clipped us. And, you know, uh, you know, to spoil the ending of the story, it worked out fine. The car got fixed, not at fault and everything. So, you know, didn't have to pay for anything either. That was nice. But that moment when it happened, all sorts of feelings flood your system. And if anyone who's ever been in a car accident, you know the kind of feelings that are there. And I didn't know who hit me or, or why, but I, I came out of the car expecting maybe some kind of conflict. I wasn't going to do anything, but... I was ready for the, the potential of it to happen. Like, okay, this might get real ugly because nastiness has a tendency to come out during an accident. You know, it, people should be checking on each other to make sure they're okay, but everyone wants to yell at each other and it's your fault, it's your fault, and it becomes a big mess. And so I came out not sure what I was going to see. And what I saw was uh, a very young girl. She was probably maybe 19 years old, probably new driver, you know, all this stuff. And... I saw the, the fear and anxiety immediately on her face. And even though I'd been like ready to like, okay, whew, amping myself up for whatever might happen, seeing that immediately, all of that just, just vanished. And the, the only thing that was there was compassion. And before it could even register in my brain, the first things out of my, my mouth were, are you okay? Right? And that was a spontaneous thing that just... It just happened. And it's not, I'm not sharing this to say that, you know, I'm, I'm amazing. Like, look what I did. Like, I would hope that anyone who practices meditation, anyone who follows the, the Buddhist middle way, after enough time would have that moment where, wow, how spontaneous it was, this reaction of compassion for another in what was a very, very tense situation. And it all worked out, you know, and it might not have. I might have come out and it could have been a six, seven real built guy. But if I had seen that same fear on his face, I think the same compassion would have been there because I realized that person was feeling what I was feeling, right? I was afraid and there was the fear on that person's face. How, how human, you know, and, and how could you not respond with compassion, when you see your own fears in others, your own doubts, your own anger, right? Because we carry anger and we think we're the only ones who have anger. We're the only ones who, who feel maybe sometimes justified in our anger. And then we look at others across the divide and then they're, they, all, they are also human, also full of doubts, also full of fears, also full of all of these conflicting and, and painful emotions. The same suffering, the suffering the, that we come into contact with in meditation feels like our own, but in truth, it's the suffering of everyone in the world. And that, that awareness of it, that, that only happens with this gentleness towards these negative thoughts. It takes a while, but it's worth it. In truth, what we call unskillful mind states 
or negative thoughts and emotions are symptoms only. In truth, we are seeking understanding of our very propensity for greed, hatred, and delusion, not combating each and every individual greedy, angry, or delusional thought, which quite honestly sounds exhausting just saying it. If we were really trying to combat every angry thought, when you start applying Vipassana as a practice, you start realizing how many angry thoughts you've had, how many greedy thoughts you've had. I don't know how many times I've thought about Chicago deep dish style pizza. It's a big craving of mine. Nachos too, pretty high on the list. And, and these things have come up all the time, all the time, all the time. And it's not that meditation over now, uh, you know, almost 20 years has made that just go away, but the relationship is different. I, I don't resist the thought, but I also acknowledge that I don't have to act on the thought, that I don't have to give it any importance, that it doesn't have to say anything about me. And that's the other side of it, of course, is that these thoughts that arise, we think they're saying really big things about who we are. They think, we think that they're saying something about us that are, it's really deep and, and meaningful. And even the really big painful stuff that takes a while to process, that stuff is, is important. We need to process those thoughts. We need to give them the space so that we can apply awareness and insight to them. But we don't have to let them dictate and, and rule our lives. This was an, an especially important lesson for me because I've always been someone with a, a slightly obsessive mind. Every time I've, I've, I've misspoken, every time I've, I've hurt someone accidentally, um, even on purpose a few times, um, any time I've, I've, I've made any kind of mistake, I run it through my head again and again and again and again and again. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Anger sticks around, doubt, fear, all of these things. They're, they're very heavy emotions. And if you, if you let them overtake you, they'll be glad to. But what you can do is remove yourself from that story. There's a particular narrative that we write for ourselves with these thoughts and emotions. They, they arise, and they arise from somewhere, but they arise and then we, we latch onto them. We identify with them and, and let them become a part of us. Stepping back, letting go in this context, means just seeing them, allowing them to be there. And I used to think of myself as a very angry person. Now I probably see myself as a person with some angry thoughts sometimes, right? Because I see the thoughts arise and they're there and then they, they start going away. And as you keep practicing Vipassana, for any of you who do, you, you see the, the thought form and you see how it forms. You see it kind of peaks and sits on your consciousness for a certain time. And at any of those points, you can start latching onto it, grabbing onto it, either for clinging, for drawing it near, or for aversion, for throwing it away or resisting or fighting it. And either way, you're, you're, you're grabbing onto this thing. 
Vipassana means letting go in the sense that you can step back to observe, step back to understand, hold it gently rather than grabbing it forcefully. And then you see that after, after that point where it reaches your consciousness, it starts to go down again, fade. And in Vipassana, we learned that this is true of any experience. Those that we call positive, those that we would call negative, neutral experiences, it's the same. And that can be very tough for us to accept that all of these things we've labeled are really just of the same nature. But when we do realize this, then we can be comfortable with what arises. Because even when really positive stuff comes up, we're usually really sad that they've gone away. Uh, grabbing starts happening with that too. Like, no, stay. As you practice Buddhist meditation long enough, alongside uh, Vipassana, you start building up your concentration and tranquility because Vipassana requires both, both uh, what we call uh, sati and, uh, and samadhi, right? So mindfulness and concentration. Those are two sides of, of meditation. Some people focus more on one than the other. We, we end up talking about uh, samatha and, and, and Vipassana, right? For me, that, that divide has really worn away, so I, I don't have a problem building up deep concentration and, uh, and experiencing um, jhana, states of, of deep tranquility. And the thing with those is that tranquility feels really nice. You get into the jhanas and you, you just, it, your mind quiets, everything empties out, and you think like, oh, okay, this is, this is the experience I was waiting for in meditation. But then the problem is, the moment you stop, all of that stuff that, that was gone for that time comes rushing back the volume gets turned up. So you still need the Vipassana side to deal with it then. After the Samatha, there has to be the Vipassana. There has to be that, that awareness of what is happening that leads to insight, liberating insight. Because stopping it for a time doesn't stop it forever. Only insight can do that. Only wisdom, the development of wisdom can do that. So we have to have both. Because... They're both turning up the volume so that we can be aware of our experiences. And when I first started getting into these deep absorption states, I got very excited. Uh, but then I realized that um, I actually became shorter of temper outside of meditation because I was just so bummed out. I wasn't experiencing tranquility. And I would just want to go back to meditate all the time. And all of a sudden, I was addicted to meditation in an unskillful way. And it's a big balancing act. It takes, it takes time. And it, and it takes skillful effort, um, handling things very gently. So our response to negative thoughts and emotions, if we really want to investigate them in the way that leads to liberating insight, has to be letting go. Not because letting go will make the thought or emotion disappear in a puff of smoke, but because you can't uncritically, non-judgmentally observe what you've what you're too busy struggling with, whether you're trying to draw it closer or push it away, you just can't. You can't have that kind of awareness with something you're fighting against the entire time. So I, I'm going to end this talk with a, with a quote from Bhante Gunaratana, who is a, a Sri Lankan monk and teacher who uh, has been very inspirational to me. And, and he says this, Let come what comes and accommodate yourself to that, whatever it is. If good mental images arise, that is fine. 
If bad mental images arise, that is fine too. Look on all of it as equal and make yourself comfortable with whatever happens. Don't fight with what you experience. Just observe it mindfully. Thank you.